Good morning. Um, I think, if I recall right, my first official act in filling in for Matt this morning is to dismiss the kids. So I hope I got that right. Uh, first of all, I want to clear up one thing, and that is, um, you know, Matt texted Billy that we start seven minutes late intentionally, and that really makes it sound like we have some kind of really smart thing that we do. But the fact is you have this time in your service of greeting each other. We just do that at the beginning because people are always out in the lobby talking to each other anyway. So it sounds like a really wise thing to do, but it's more of a case of if you can't beat them, join them. So we just let them, we assume that that conversation that happens before church is part of the worship. So we just do it up front. It's, it's uh, nothing smart that we have. Um, also now, Matt says he preaches till about 1.30 or 2. Is that... Is that about right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, you know, we are actually out here, live out here, and it's Matt's fault. Matt, it's because of Matt that we're here. Um, we've been friends for a long time, and when Second Street started looking for a pastor, he and Marta were at a minister's meeting, and she just casually asked him, do you know anyone that might be good that would fit with us? And first he said no, but by the time he got home, he thought, I wonder if Bruce would fit, and he sent me all this stuff and started campaigning really hard, and we ended up at Second Street, so it's all Matt's fault that we're here. So and we're going to be talking about Matthew 5, the entire chapter of Matthew 5 in one service. That's, wow. Uh, what I want to do is highlight a few things, talk about a few things. Um, first of all, where this all fits, um, as Matthew brings us this thing, we call the Sermon on the Mount. First of all, let me ask you, um, when you read or when you heard that read this morning, all these verses, the Beatitudes and all the, you know, that not only uh, not only can you not kill, but even holding a good grudge puts you in jeopardy and all those kinds of things. What, what's your response to all that when you read this Sermon on the Mount? And this isn't a rhetorical question. I, what do you think? What, what, are you, what are your impressions when you hear that, when you read that? Gold? Oh, gulp? Gulp, yeah. yeah. Anyone else? Not possible. Hmm, okay. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah, I mean, you have all these things that Jesus demands of us, and then on verse 20 he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, and then later on at the end he ends this whole thing by saying, be perfect, even as your Father in Heaven is perfect, and I think that gulp and that it's not possible is a pretty uh, common reaction to that. But part of that, I think, is because we don't understand where Jesus is coming from, and we don't understand what Matthew's saying here. So, first of all, and you've been going through this, I imagine that Matt covered this, so I'll just do a little um, quick review. But if you recall, before this in Matthew, uh, Jesus comes out of a couple of, chapters ahead, comes and is baptized by John the Baptist. Uh, and we have that moment when the dove comes down and you hear the voice of God and you have that like the first time in Scripture where you have the, the whole Trinity kind of revealed right there in one moment where the you have the Spirit coming down like a dove and then the voice of the Father. So that's kind of this initiation of Jesus' ministry. And then we have Jesus going out in the 
in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and goes through the temptation. It's like he goes through this time and kind of figures out and, and is sure of his calling because he comes out of that wilderness experience. And Matthew tells us that as soon as he comes out of that experience, he hears that John the Baptist has been arrested. And there's this verse that says, after that, Jesus went out and ministered. So it's like that. that's kind of this this beginning of Jesus' ministry. So this is right at the beginning. So you have then Matthew giving us his Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, and it's kind of like Jesus' kingdom manifesto. It's like uh, any of you who are familiar with the story, The Christmas Carol, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dixon, Dickens, or if you've watched The Muppets' Christmas Carol, um, then you know at the beginning of that story, Gonzo says, and he's quoting Dickens from the book, he says, Marley was dead. Actually, says the Marleys because they changed it. But Marley was dead. If you don't understand, then the nothing that follows is wondrous. And it's kind of like, like Matthew is telling us here. Here's what Jesus is, how Jesus is describing the kingdom. If you don't understand that, then nothing that Jesus does through the rest of this book makes sense. Jesus heals people. And if we don't understand what the kingdom is about, then we just say, oh, that was nice. Or that was loving, or but we don't understand. Um, there's some pretty radical things here. Jesus wasn't killed because he was a nice guy. There's some pretty radical things here. So I want I want us to understand uh, what those are. So the first thing I want us to understand is who Jesus was talking to. So it says at the very beginning of that chapter, it says when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. So oftentimes, you know, if you if you watch one of the, the movies, The Passion of the Christ or The Greatest Story Ever Told, or whatever the Jesus movie is that you watch, if they do the Sermon on the Mount, usually he's standing up on the side of the mountain and there's this multitude of people out in front of him. Well, the multitude of people may have been there, but what Matthew's saying is he gathered his disciples. And I, and, and I think when he's using the term here, he hasn't even picked out the 12 yet. So he's this may be a big gathering of 30, 40, who knows how many but it's the people who are closest to Jesus. In other words, if we're going to look at this, one of the things that maybe makes it so hard is we look at all the things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, we go, the world can never be that way. And see, Jesus wasn't talking to the multitude. He was not talking to those people out there. He was talking to us. He was talking to the disciples. So it's not just that the kingdom is going to happen. And we, we say our prayer and we're saved and then we just wait for Jesus to bring the kingdom. Jesus is saying to his disciples, here's how you bring the kingdom. Here's, here's your part in bringing the kingdom. Also, it's important to understand the world that they live in. So when you hear Jesus say certain things like, blessed are thee, he's talking to a particular group of people. And so it's important to know how different their society was than our society. So they lived in this thing called the agrarian society, which is very different from the society we live in right now. And, and there's this guy named Gerhard Linsky, and he said he studied those. Ooh, that's not a very good color I picked out there. Uh, okay. And he picked out, he said there's like nine classes in this agrarian society. Every society has a class system. Most of them don't admit it. Uh, like in India, we know the caste system, and, and uh, that was part of their culture. Well, every, every culture has it. And this was what the agrarian society that Jesus would have grown up and lived in. So the first class, you can't see that because I chose a bad color. 
is the ruling class. And these were the gentries, the gentry, the landowners, uh, the royalty, those kind of people. Uh, oh, thank you. Good job. The second class is the governing class. These would have been the politicians. Uh, this would have been like uh, people who, had, who uh, were chosen to rule, people who were governors, those kinds of things. Um, then the third one was the retainer class. This would have been the lawyers, the scribes, the bureaucrats. That would have been like where Zacchaeus fell in. He would have been one of those. And then the merchant class. Uh, these are people who owned shops, stores, those kinds of things. Then the priestly class, which, of course, would have been the priests uh, and the Levites. Then there's this line that Linsky calls the Great Divide. And then you have the four bottom classes. And they are the peasantry, which would have been tenant farmers. Um, when Jesus talks about um, uh, landlords and stuff, that would have been very real to them because we think of a farmer as somebody who owns a farm and lives on that farm and works it. The farmers then, they didn't own the land. They lived on somebody else's land and worked it for them and had to pay uh, part of what they uh, harvested to that person who owned the land. Artisans, carpenters, skilled laborers, this would have been what Joseph were, were the, the uh, class that Joseph would have been in. This is where Jesus would have grown up as a, a carpenter. Then they had what, what Linsky calls the undesirables, those who didn't fit in. And I just don't mean those who were kind of weird or odd. But, for instance, if you had a job that was considered a dirty job that made you unclean, like if you, if you were a pig farmer, you would have been one of these undesirables. The shepherds were undesirables. And so that was, when, when Luke tells us that the angels went out and told the shepherds about the birth of Jesus, that was radical because they were under these undesirables. They were not uh, a welcome part of society. Then the bottom class was the expendables. This would have been criminals, beggars, the infirm, the disabled. So, for instance, when that woman with the issue of blood uh, went and touched Jesus, that would have been radical because the pers a person in this bottom class, you didn't want to associate with them, you didn't want to touch them because they would have made you clean. Jesus uh, uh, touching a leper would have been just as radical. Um, and this, so the, you see this class system, and uh, that, for instance, uh, the story of the uh, prodigal son, how radical that would be, because you would have had a probably a ruling class, a gentry landowner father, and the son goes and begins to work for a pig farmer. Suddenly he's gone down to the next to the bottom rung. And so the right move in their culture would have been for the father to disown the son. He has turned his back on his class and his family and chosen something else. So the ruling class owned up to 50% of the land and resources, but this was about 1% of the population. The merchant class only, only was about 5% of the population. This is how different they are from us. Now the merchant class is probably the majority of our culture. Uh, the priestly class, um, they would have also owned land, about 15% of the land. So the top five classes, when you took those top five classes, they controlled 80 to 90% of the land and resources, and they represented no more than 20% of the population. The bottom half represented 80% of the population, and they really controlled virtually nothing. Okay? So that's how their culture worked. So they had what they called a patronage society. And it's not what you know, but who you know. So if you don't control any resources, another, another you know, when we see a movie about the life of Jesus, we see Joseph, his father, as this carpenter, and he has his own carpentry shop, and he's doing, and that wouldn't have been how it was. He would have had to have a patron. 
he would have had one of the landowners and he would have worked for that landowner. Chances are he would have lived in a home on that landowner's property and we would have done work exclusively for that landowner. And so he owned nothing. It, it was based on who he knew. Uh, this is one of the reasons. Hey, who's that stranger out there in the lobby right there? No. Anyway. So anyway, um, it would have been. And so this is one of the reasons we have difficulty with, say, uh, Mexico. Because they still operate under a patronage kind of system, right? So, um, for instance, when you get a government job in Mexico, when you get a government job here, you get paid and you you are assumed to have a certain responsibility. When you get a government job there, it puts you in control of a certain resource, and that is your ticket to, to earn a living based on that resource. So what we think is graft, and what we think is, is um, like bribery and stuff, that's, that's their understanding of how the system works. Uh, a while back, I had a nephew. He's, a, he's quite a hunter. He lives in Oklahoma. He's quite a hunter. He came out to California to visit his, uh, my sister, his grandparents, and they decided to go down to Mexico. And they made sure they got all the guns out of the truck. But when they went through the border, the border guards found a box of shells, live shells, underneath the seat of the truck, and they put them in jail. And so um, they were able to get a hold of, of uh, the family on the, on the uh, U.S. side of the border. And uh, they got a hold of a lawyer, and the lawyer tried to get them out, and they could not get any satisfaction. And so what this lawyer did was he knew a lawyer, a Mexican lawyer, so he contacted him. He knew somebody who had access to the person who ran the jail, and they were able to get a bribe to that person who ran the jail. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And that's the kind of system that Jesus grew up in. It's, it's who you know. You had to have a patron. And even the access to God, and this is important to understand, even the access to God was controlled by the priestly class. That the average everyday person that was in those bottom four classes, they didn't really have access to God except through the priestly class. So they really had no control, no access to anything. So that's important to remember as we go through this. So there was like this two-level teaching that Jesus is doing when he's, when he's talking. Anywhere, you, you have the story of Zacchaeus. And uh, Jesus came to, play, came to a place where Zacchaeus was. He looked up and said, remember Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus would have been that, that uh, retainer class. And Jesus, to that group, that top five group, the top five classes, he was constantly saying, you need to come down. You need to come down. That's symbolic here of Zacchaeus being the tree. You need to come down here with the rest of us. And to the lower four classes, Jesus said things like, so the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So Jesus is saying to them, you can come up. You can come up. You can come up with the rest of us. So with all that in mind, and uh, we, I still have till two, so we got plenty of time to do all this. Let's look at the Beatitudes through those lenses. So Jesus starts out with the Beatitudes and said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you remember, Matthew, this is supposed to be written by Matthew, so what was Matthew's job, you remember, before Jesus called him as a disciple? Tax collector. So he would have been one of that retainer class, right? So part of the assumption that scholars read this, they, they feel like, if he was talking to people that he was associated with, that he the circles he operated in, he would have been talking to what we now would call the middle class or those above the line. 
uh, probably the lower ones above that line. So he says, poor in spirit. If you go to Luke, Luke's gospel, Luke's a Gentile, so he would have automatically been one of those undesirables. And, and Luke always focuses on the down and out. And those. Luke says, just straight up, blessed are the poor. So it's a really kind of different feeling gospel, but a different uh, version of the, of the uh, sermon. But uh, first of all, the word blessed there, you probably, if you've read several different translations, you've seen that happy, translated as happy, um, blessed, uh, many different ways. Kind of the idea behind that blessed is almost like we would say congratulations. So then you get blessed, congratulations are the poor in spirit. And that word, I have that word poor highlighted because that's not the common word that's translated normally when you see poor in the Bible. That's not the word that Jesus uses there or that Matthew uses there. But it's the word that they would have used to refer to those bottom two classes, the undesirables and the expendables. That's the word that they would that's used right there. And what it literally means is those who are bent or crouching or empty. And so he's saying, blessed are you when your spirit, when you've come to the end of your rope, when you've hit bottom, when you're at that place where there's no hope, because right where in that place where you are is where the kingdom of heaven is. Then Jesus goes on and back back up a minute. I also want you to notice that it says for theirs is. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Then he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. One of the things that I think we commonly do is that we do our best to make grief and tears unnecessary. We do the best in our life. Uh, oftentimes we, we think money will do that. Or oftentimes we separate ourselves from um, relationships. Or we separate ourselves from situations where you might get hurt. Or it might be risky. But Jesus says, when you mourn, you'll be comforted. That part of the kingdom is not avoiding those things that might put us in jeopardy, that might put us at risk, that might put us in a situation where we have to mourn. But the kingdom is stepping into those because we know that we will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Here Jesus is quoting Psalm 37 where he says, but the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Um, that word gentle, uh, we use the word meek, or a lot of times we see it translated meek. And I've heard people say meek is strength under control or something like that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when you respond out of kind, gentle, when you are nonviolent, when you are uh, gracious, when you are merciful. Blessed are you in those times. Because you'll inherit the earth. Again, we try to avoid this, right? We think, oh, if I don't protect myself, I don't take care of myself, then nobody else is going to take care of me. Um, and they lived in a, those bottom four that Jesus is talking about. They lived in a world where no one else was going to take care of them, where they were the ones who were taken advantage of. 
Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me ask you another question. Quiz. When you hear the word righteous, what do you think? What's that word mean to you? I teach college. I know what it's like to have no one answer my questions. I can wait. When you hear the word righteous, what does that mean to you? Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst after righteousness. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, what's, what's that mean? Okay. Yeah, this word is more, more, yeah, I think a lot of us think, and maybe we're raised to think, righteousness means a person who follows the rules or does what's right or does good, doesn't do bad, um, those kinds of things. Uh, but this word is much more closely tied to what we would say is justice, although even that is confusing because if I ask most people, what does the word justice mean to you? Most of us would answer, a person gets the punishment they deserve. When the, the justice they're talking about here is that everyone gets uh, what is good, that, that um, not some have and some have not, but that everyone equally share, that there is this equality, that there is this, this fairness that goes across society. So in some ways this looks like Jesus is, might be talking to those top five where he says, your desire for justice will give you satisfaction. See, and I think we think differently. The world thinks differently, right? That says, if I, if I don't get my share, you know, I've got to get my share, even if other people don't get their share, then I'll be satisfied. If I get this, if I get that, if I take care of this, if I take care of that, if I'm protected this way, if, if I'm protected that way, I will be satisfied. It doesn't matter if somebody else doesn't get. But what Jesus says is if you have this heart for justice, if you have this heart where everyone is equal under, under God's eyes, that, that uh, people in need have what I have, then you'll be satisfied. It's upside down from what the rest of the world says. Right? It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. There's this quote from Max Lucado. It says, Forgiveness is unlocking the door to set someone free and realizing you were the prisoner. If you think about that word mercy, that word mercy or the right or that the possibility of being merciful is a characteristic of the powerful. Right? I mean, even in a particular situation, if somebody has hurt you, the only way you have the power to be merciful is if somehow you've got the power in that situation. If if uh you can forgive them without an apology or whatever. You've got this right or you've got something over on them. So in a sense, that merciful word is a, is a characteristic of the powerful. And what Jesus is saying here is if you expect, if that, if that mercy or that forgiveness is not unsolicited, if it is not owed, or if it was owed, if you owed somebody mercy, or if it was something that you did out of obligation, then it's not mercy. 
It's something freely given when the other person doesn't deserve it, maybe when the other person hasn't even asked for it. Blessed are the merciful. When you give that mercy, unsolicited, unowed, with no obligation, then you'll receive mercy in the same way. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The uh, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, um, he's my favorite philosopher because he's Danish and my dad was born in Denmark. So he could probably say anything and he'd be my favorite philosopher. But he says, Purity of the heart is to will one thing. And in fact, he wrote a whole book called Purity of the Heart is to Will One Thing. His point is that, it, that when, when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, the pure in heart can only desire one thing. Otherwise, you're not pure in heart. In James, it talks about the opposite of the pure heart is a double-minded, right? Jesus, in Luke, he says, the eye of the lamp is your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. It talks about being able to see. And the image here, this great image that Jesus is giving here when he says, Blessed are the parent, for they shall see God, is the image of looking God in the eye. If you're pure in heart, if your desire to, to follow Jesus, if your desire to bring the kingdom is the only thing that's in your heart, then you have this, this ability to see God face to face. That if you're desire is to protect yourself if your desire is to to promote yourself if your desire is some other thing other than just following jesus other than bringing the kingdom then you're not pure of heart and you'll never have that face to face with god you will be in the way and then he says blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of god uh, back in the struggle for South Africa in the 90s, um, I listened to an interview once uh, on a program called uh, On Being, Krista Tippett. She was interviewing um, Desmond Tutu. And he's talking about the first conference that they had, um, the, the general conference where they invited both sides of the issue of apartheid. And uh, he said up to then, he has this quote, he says, we've been on a kind of roller coaster ride, reaching the heights of euphoria that a new dispensation was virtually here, and then touching the depths of despair because of the mindless violence and carnage that seemed to place the whole negotiation process in considerable jeopardy. And just as we were recovering our breath, the God of surprises played his most extraordinary an incredible card. What happens was it's like they would make progress and then one side or the other would break out into violence and everything would slide. It's like one step forward, two steps back, that kind of thing. And sometimes it seemed like it was getting better. Sometimes it was getting worse. And then they had this first Congress where they or conference where they brought the two sides together to talk. And, they, and all this debating is going on and pointing of fingers. And then a, a uh, Professor from the Dutch Reformed Church, which the Dutch Reformed Church were kind of, was kind of the official religion of the of that of the Afrikaner government. Uh, they were kind of ones who said, "Yes, apartheid is a biblical um, uh, is is defendable biblically." This professor, this Dutch Reformed professor, gets up in the middle of the whole Congress and he says, "Apartheid cannot be defended by Scripture. We have been wrong, and I'm sorry." That was the trump card 
the incredible, incredible trump card that Desmond Tutu was talking about, where this person got up and said, we are wrong. We're sorry. And that paved the way for what became one of the most incredible stories of reconciliation uh, in South Africa. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Then he finally says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have been persecuted because they have tried to bring about justice. Blessed are those who are persecuted because they try to bring the kingdom and nobody seems to understand. Theirs is. The first beatitude, Jesus starts out and he says, when you're so down, when there's no hope, when your spirit is so laid low, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is right there. Open your eyes. Jesus is right there. At the end, he says, when people understand you trying to bring about the kingdom, when people don't understand, and unfortunately, if people don't understand you bring, trying to bring about the kingdom, a lot of times it's not the people outside the church that don't understand and will give you heartburn about it. It's the people inside the church that will not understand and give you heartburn about it. He says, open your eyes when it's like that. Because Jesus is right there. I'm right there. Yours is. Present tense. The rest of them are future tense. You will be comforted. These two are present tense. So as you hear these uh, beatitudes that Jesus has brought, these congratulations, congratulations when this happens, how do you respond to that? How does that impress? What does that impress upon you? What's your reaction to what we've just looked at? It's a surprise every time. Okay. What else? What do you think Jesus is trying to say? Go. Yeah, go ahead. Sarcasm. Ooh. It's very different from what the world asks us to do, right? Yeah. What do you mean by sarcasm? I'm interested. An insult? Yeah. Like Jesus is pointing his finger saying you're not doing this. Yeah. Yeah. It's at least very counterintuitive, isn't it? No one else. How do you respond to these? Well, let me give you a couple of things that I take from them. First of all, I think Jesus is saying God's accessible to all. First of all, remember they're in this culture where, where the priesthood class controlled the access to God. If you were in those bottom four classes, you didn't get to go to God face to face. You had to go through somebody else. I think Jesus is saying God is accessible to everyone. In fact, it shows Jesus has a bias for the bottom because he says these things like congratulations when you've hit bottom. Congratulations when you're mourning. Congratulations when you show mercy. Congratulations. All these things that fit the circumstances of those who are powerless. Jesus says God is there with you. God is accessible. He's present. The kingdom is present. The second thing I think he's saying is God can be trusted. Um, 
To them, he would have been saying, look, even in your circumstances, you don't have to have somebody else to access God first. Secondly, God can be trusted. God will be there with you. Even when things are hard, even when things are stressful, even when things are hopeless, God can be trusted. To us, I think we can say that Jesus calls us to be hungry and risk, to step out of that comfort zone, to put ourselves in those situations that might cause us to mourn, put ourselves in that situation where our mercy toward another person may be taken advantage of, put ourselves in a situation where we might have to be a peacemaker, put ourselves in those kind of situations Jesus calls us to risk. You are my disciples. Here's how you bring about the kingdom. You act this way. And finally, I think he's saying God's kingdom is present and we are being called to live into it. I think one of the things that Jesus says very clearly in this teaching is that there is not an inconsistency between the means and the end. You cannot bring about peace through violence. You cannot bring about love through hatred. You cannot bring about mercy by a lack of mercy. That the means correspond to the end. And so Jesus says, if the kingdom come, if when he says later, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is how you do it, and it's the only way to do it. You can't force other people into the kingdom. Any other thoughts before we close in prayer? I was thinking the same thing. Any thoughts? So is it still hard? Is it still impossible? Is it still gulp? Yeah, yeah, good. Anyone else? Look, I'm getting you out way ahead of 2 o'clock. See how, how kind I am? Okay. All right, let's close in prayer. Jesus, it would have been much easier if you would just let us say a prayer and keep our noses clean until you come and bring the kingdom. That somehow asking us to be part of your kingdom come is hard. It doesn't fit with any of the rest of the world. It doesn't fit with anything uh, that culture tells us to do. It makes me understand now when you talk about the foolishness of God. But I also thank you that you think highly enough about us that you ask us to be your partners in bringing the kingdom. Help us to be kingdom people. To do those things that run against what culture would say, what, what it seems like the world would suggest is the best practice and the smart move. And that we would be those pure of heart people that look only to follow you and to bring your kingdom. Help these things to be on our heart. 
In the name of Jesus. Amen. I would leave you with a quote when it comes to the uh, to this very thing of bringing the kingdom. G.K. Chesterton, the, the uh, philosopher, theologian, humorist, he fit in many, many uh, titles. He once said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. He said it has been found difficult and left untried. And uh, Gandhi once said that many of the things that he used in, in his peaceful movement of, of uh, freeing India came straight from Jesus, but he refused to call himself a Christian because he says the people who call themselves that don't follow the person they proclaim to follow. So I think if I take those two quotes, I think I would agree, even when we look at these through this lens, that it's a gulp and that it's hard. But when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're asking for this very thing. Thanks for uh, being open and welcoming to me. And Anything else, Tim, before? Do we have a song? Okay. Which one? Chesterton? He said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Okay.